Hey everybody, what's up? This is Air in the Air with another episode of the How to Adventure podcast. Cue the dubstep, Chinese version. to be back. I love Oregon. I just got back from two and a half weeks traveling through China. That's why you haven't had any podcasts from me. And I just want to tell you about China. Everyone's been asking me lots of questions and everyone wants to hear about the trip. So here you go. We're going to go chronologically today. And I'll just tell you about the trip and the experiences on the way. So, to begin, the trip kind of came up last minute. I got a call from my Canadian counterpart and brother from another mother, Spencer Seabrook. You know him as the former free solo world record highliner from Canada. He called me and said that he had an obligation to go to this Chinese slackline competition And he no longer could go, and he called me to see if I could fill a spot. I had an engagement with my other friends. We were going to go do a Highline project in the Oahe Canyon in Oregon, and that was canceled for the China trip. So I got onto this Slackline gig. The first thing that I asked the Slackline organizers was to book my ticket for 10 days after the end of the event obligation, you know, because I wanted to give myself a little time to travel around and yada, yada, yada. So what ended up happening was I took the leverage from this uh, Slackline trip. I got my airplane ticket through the Slackline company, and then I took it to Keen, my best sponsor, and I pitched them a little project, a little film project, and they obliged they were stoked they loved it so they agreed to help fund my friend chris hoyt who you know as my travel partner from morocco spain france brazil chile peru um and we got chris's ticket booked and so he was going to meet me in china so i took off i left from my house to the redmond airport and from redmond i flew Where did I go? I went uh, Redmond to San Francisco and then San Francisco to Shanghai, which was 13 hours, 20 minutes, which is just a brutal amount of time in an airplane. But I arrived and I arrived with Ryan Robinson. You know him on Instagram as Handsome Robinson. He's an American Ninja Warrior competitor, uh, Instagram famous, and in general, a badass great highliner slackliner good really really kind person and so we were on the flight together and we arrived in shanghai and we were picked up by sharon who's the athlete organizer of slackline china and she picked us up we 
waited just a short time for some other German Highliners, Flo Zoller and Kieran. They arrived. Their bags did not, unfortunately. And we jumped on this shuttle and we went to this uh, hotel near the airport. And uh, we got in the shuttle and we took off. And the first thing I noticed, I started observing the driving because driving is something that I'm very interested in in different countries. I think it's kind of indicative of culture. And right away, I noticed that this this uh, shuttle bus driver was using his horn a lot. He was honking when he was passing in the left lane. He was honking when he got behind cars, like trying to get him out of the way, tell him to speed up. And there was this one car in front of us that was kind of driving slow, and he just just tailgating the shit out of him and honking and honking and honking. Finally, he gets some space in the right lane, so he starts passing the car, and about half of the bus gets past the car, and he just starts pulling into their lane and slowing down, which forces the car to slam on their brakes and veer into the oncoming lane, and then... Once he's done this to the car, forcing them back, he doesn't really speed up. It wasn't He wasn't honking and cutting them off to get them to go faster. He just kind of passed them and just kept driving at the pretty much the exact same speed he was when he was behind the car. So I kind of realized that the time issue, the speed issue, is not exactly the same here in America or in Mexico. Uh, here in America, if you pass, if someone's slow and you honk and they move over and you, you ram on the gas pedal and you go hauling ass past them and you say, oh, look out, you're, you're holding me up. Time is money. Let's move. Um, but that didn't seem to be the case there in China. So we got to the hotel and we spent the night. And the next day we loaded up into this uh, another another bus and we did about nine hours on the road to the event location. And the nine hours was spent with a dozen slackliners from all over the world. Brazilians, Argentinians, Canadians, Americans, Germans, Austrians. Am I missing someone there? And uh, it was really great. We talked philosophy. I had a principal rant about universally preferable behaviors. We tied so many knots. Anthony Boulay from Canada gave us Knots 101. He's very innovative knot and knot maker and rigger. And so we went over all his new really cool knots for highlining. Um, and as we rolled down the road, I couldn't help but notice some things. The first thing was, wow, there is so much water in China. Not a mile past that we didn't go over a bridge, over a canal, over a river, over a huge lake. Just so much fresh water everywhere. Another thing that I noticed was there are massive amounts of what I observed as ghost town developments. When I say that, I mean there are 20-story buildings, brand new, standing vacant. There are brand new houses, brand new apartment buildings, brand new office buildings, vacant, 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 all built. They don't even have paved roads to them. I, after being there for two weeks, I just kind of assumed this was 
communism. This was job creation. This was economy stimulation. They're building things that are not necessarily in demand currently from the free market, and they are giving people jobs to do so. I know that the housing market in China is kind of crazy. There's a lot of people looking for houses. But if that was true, I would think that they would finish the buildings completely. They would pave the streets to them and people would move in. But that doesn't seem to be the case. There is an enormous amount of construction going on in China right now. There are so many cranes on top of buildings. There are so many buildings under construction. It's crazy. And as we drove, we couldn't help but notice these things. So we were kind of in our own little bubble, right? Because now we're a bunch of slackliners. We all speak English. And we're kind of in our own little bubble. We have Sharon, who's the athlete coordinator for the Slackline China. And she pretty much gets us whatever we need, food and drinks and rides and, you know, all that stuff. So... We're kind of in our own little bubble so far in the trip, not having to interact in Chinese, not having to use Google Translate to communicate with anyone. Um, we're kind of sheltered, but it was cool. It was a nice way to kind of be eased into the travel experience. Usually we travel somewhere, we get off of the airplane and you get out of the airport and bam, you're there. You got to figure it out right off the bat. But here we were kind of spoiled. So, Hours and hours go by, and finally, after what seemed like an eternity, we arrived to the event site, the hotel, which was in a place called Wanfo Lake. Wanfo Hu. And that is in a province called Anhui. And Wanfo Lake is about, let's call it almost two hours from the capital of Anhui, which is Hefei. Hefei is a city of eight million people. But we didn't drive through Hefei. We we didn't really see any of that. So as we came in, it kind of seemed like we were in the middle of nowhere. And this lake is absolutely massive. There's probably 10 huge dams that create this just massive lake that goes for farther than you can see. It has so many little islands and inlets and coves that realistically we didn't explore not even a fraction of this lake, right? So the first night we arrive, and we probably arrived at 4 o'clock or 5 o'clock, and they said, okay, in half an hour, drop your stuff off in your room. In half an hour, the boat leaves, and we're going to the competition island. I was like, okay, sweet. The competition, as we had, had explained to us, was a slack line or a waterline relay race an international relay race. So I was part of Team North America, me, Ryan Robinson, Anthony Boulay of Canada, and the current and into the unforeseeable future female world record holder, my friend Mia Noblet. We were Team North America. And uh, so we, we get on the boat and we go out to the competition island to check this place out. When we get there, the French team who... Uh, Anthony Newton and Guillaume Roland, who I've known for a couple years, they were the head riggers of this event, and they were there on the island. And they greeted us and kind of showed us around. There were four lengths of lines. Each set is two lines right next to each other, 
because it's going to be a head-to-head -head relay race. So the first line is 100 meters. The second line is 55 meters. The third line is 180 meters. And the last line is 200 meters. And remember, a meter is 3.281 feet, so just times it by three and a third. There you go. So that night, as Anthony is kind of introducing us to the place, the, the uh, other event coordinator, who gives himself an American name or an English name, but I can't remember it because he's a Chinese guy, and I like people's real names. But they kind of get into this little argument where Antony says, yeah, tomorrow you'll have all day to train. And the Chinese guy says, no, tomorrow we do the event. Well, everyone was kind of on the same page that that was unfair. Obviously, the French guys have been there for three days rigging. They were, their jet lag was, was, uh, was over. They had fixed that. And we had just arrived. We were jet lagged, we spent nine hours on a bus, and then the next day we were expected to compete. Not just participate, but compete. Uh, well, he fought for us there, but uh, and it, and it worked. It worked. They delayed the event one day so that we could train. Well, later that night we had a meeting at back at the hotel, and it came to light that not only were we competing, but our pay for the event was depending on our, our uh, performance, like how we finished, right? So the first place was going to split 6,000 euros, second place 4,000 euros, blah, blah, blah. So I complained that, or I voiced the opinion that most of us had, which was that that's unfair for us to show up, have one day training, and then compete for our pay. And I proposed to the French, who were pretty much the organizers of the event from the Slackline side, um, that we pool the money and we split it. And I'm really, really proud of the French and Anthony Newton, Guillaume Roland, and Pablo, those guys, for saying, you know what, you're right, we should split the pot. Let's split it all together they foresaw the same issues that I did, that the morale of the group was going to be just infinitely split up by this thing where, you know, the people who lose don't get paid and the people who win are likely to be the French anyways because they're so fucking good. But um, they decided that, yeah, splitting the pot was a good deal. Um, and we did that behind closed doors because the TV event, needed to go down with competition and with fervor and uh, pride and battle. And so we, we, we still carried on with, with that and tried our best, but in the end we split the pot, which I'm really just shouts out to the French team for just being uh, rad because I think they, they were the ones that really pushed that through. And realistically, come on, we're all a bunch of slacklining dirtbags, and so sharing the pot, was the pretty much only slack life thing to do. And I'm glad that we were all on the same page with that. So that's a little, maybe we've gone already too far into the politics, but anyway, the next day we have uh, a whole day to train at the lines and 
Um, we get there and do some, some racing and some practicing. And I actually think we did the, that we did the semifinals that first day, but we did it in the afternoon. So in the first round, we were pitted against the French. Dun, dun, dun. The French team is just so incredibly talented. It consists of Pablo, who is this 18-year-old prodigy. He's definitely in the next uh, generation of slackliners. Um, Guillaume Roland and Anthony Newton, who are really close friends and rigging partners and slackline all the time and are just so awesome. I met them in Moab a couple of years ago, rigging a 220-meter line. And Anthony... He holds the world record for the longest blindfolded highline walk, 342 meters blindfolded. Jeez Louise, people. What are we even? We're getting into some crazy things in this sport. Uh, and their fourth member of the team is Natan Pauline. He on sighted the world record highline, which is 1,200 meters. Wow, that's a long highline. That is so freaking far. He, all these guys are so solid and so talented, and they're so fast. It's crazy how fast they can walk on a slack line. So in the first round, we were pitted up against the French. We put up the best battle we could, but let's be real. We knew we were going to lose to them. So... In the finals, we were, or the, you know, the, what is it? I guess the first round was the qualifying. The second round was the semifinals. We were going for third and fourth place. And we were up against the South Americans. Uh, two guys from Argentina, Fidi Cantu and Thomas Bravo. Tommy Bravo. I really like those guys. I'm partial to Latins. Um... They're both talented slackliners. And then the two Brazilians who were Rafael Bridi and Vinicius Vinicaui from Sao Paulo, Brazil and Florinopolis, respectively. They're just awesome Brazilians. I love Brazil and Brazilians, and they were so much fun to hang out with. And the end, it came down to the last leg, the 200-meter leg, and it was... On our team, Anthony Boulet, and on their team, Rafael Bridi from Brazil, and they battled it out on the 200-meter water lines, which these lines are all made out of uh, Dyneema polyester blend webbing called Moonwalk. They're all very, very tight, and they are extremely difficult to walk with no wind. So... A little bit about the slacklining itself. In this day and age in slacklining, we are kind of in a realm where we do things really loose. We allow there to be a lot of sag in the line in our high lines, and we allow the backup to have big loops in it, which dampens the the movement of the line. The low tension means that the energy doesn't transfer through the line so that when you make a mistake on the line, it doesn't go bouncing off the anchor and come right back to you. Well, these lines are totally different because they're water lines. So it's 200 meters long. So it's 660 feet and it's 12 feet off the water, meaning that 
the line has to have about one that are like 1,500 pounds of tension on it before you even get on the thing. So it's really, really tight. This webbing that we're walking on moonwalk is notorious for being very sharp, which means that it hurts if you catch it. If you fall down and you catch it, it hurts really bad. It cuts up your legs. It cuts up your arms. It cuts up your hands. And it's really lightweight but it's very sharp, so it kind of hurts your feet. It's just not very comfortable. It's not that fun because it's not very stretchy. Um, so these are the issues we're dealing with. The wind that I'm talking about, if you're walking on a really long line and there's nice steady wind, the force of the wind on the line keeps the line from oscillating. And it makes the mistakes that you make as they go down the line, they're absorbed by the wind pushing on the line in one direction. When you don't have any wind and you're on a really tight line like that, it's like a guitar string. So imagine yourself trying to walk a guitar string and you're in the middle of it and you make a big mistake. That energy that you put into the line, it goes down the line. It bounces off the anchor really efficiently because, because it's so tight and it bounces and it comes right back to your feet, which then shakes the line under your feet and then you make another mistake and then you just get these mega oscillations that are going through the line and it's just really, really difficult. So in that last leg of the 200 meter line, both of those guys were really struggling with the no wind. It's a long line, really tight, painful. Everybody watching, we're all cheering for them. They did a great job. Hats off to those guys. So in the end of the slackline competition, the North American team, we were fourth of four. We totally lost. We got smoked. I mean, not really smoked by the South Americans, but we got smoked by the French guys, and we lost. And we got last place, which, I mean, comp competing in slacklining is a funny thing to do anyways, but uh, we we laughed that one off. <laughs> we, we laughed it off pretty good. Um, so after the competition was over, the morale just went totally through the roof. We're 16 slackliners from all over the world. We're all getting along really, really well. We're all having a total blast. We're in China. People have flown us across the planet to slackline. We got paid to do it. We're getting fed breakfast and lunch and dinner. We got hammocks. Now all we do is we slackline all day. We hang out in the sun and we swim. And we're just totally having a blast. And we're loving it. So... Another element of this slackline event that they had put up was they were going to do the world record waterline, which was 680 meters, just over 2,200 feet, which is hard for you to even fathom the length of this thing. It is hard to even fathom. The line itself went from the top floor of a four-story Buddhist temple on a little tiny island in the middle of the lake. So in the middle of this giant lake, there's a little tiny island that they've built a huge temple in or on. And from the top level of this, out the window, runs this 2,000-foot slack line all the way to the side of the lake. It is... An incredible feat of rigging. The French guys totally nailed the rigging. And it's 2,200 feet with about 
20 meters sag. So it's about 60 feet off the water at the anchors, but in the middle, you pretty much touch. So the line had about, when I walked it, about 500 kilos tension. When they rigged it, it had about 750 kilos tension standing. Um, and they tried to, they got the Guinness Book of World Records out there and they did a, a world record attempt officially. The first person who tried to walk it was, I think, Natan Pauline from France. And I think he fell uh, near the end. There was no wind. It was really difficult. And the next person to go was Julian Mittermeier, who has uh, been inspiring people on Slacklines for many years. He's very humble, unsponsored, incredible Slackliner. And he got on there no wind and struggled and struggled and struggled, but didn't fall down and finally just locked in. And he walked the entire thing with no wind and set the world record, got the official Guinness plaque, got paid a bunch of euros. It was really cool. Congratulations to Julian for that. The controversy that surrounded the world record here in Wanfo Lake was they had rigged the line three weeks prior and because that's when the slackline event was supposed to take place, but it got, it got canceled and postponed for reasons that I don't know. And during the time between the time they had rigged the 680 meter waterline and the time that we actually went and did the event, these other guys from Switzerland and Germany, respectively, Samuel Volery and Lucas Ermler, they had rigged a 720-meter line in Switzerland. But the thing about their line was they used two cranes, and the line was about 115 feet off the water, and they had a backup on it. And so everyone said, well, that's not really a water line. That's a water midline because it had a backup, which a backup really affects the way the line moves and how easy it is to walk. And so they had claimed that they had set the water line world record. Well, the French guys disagreed. They said that's not a water line because it has a backup and it's too high. And so Guinness agreed. And they set the world record in Wanfo Lake, Julian Mittermeier. So I got a chance to walk on this 680 foot long slack line or 680 meter long slack line, 2,200 feet. Unfortunately, I did it really late in the evening when the light was nice and golden so that we could film. And I walked about half of it with really nice steady wind. And it was so easy. It was so easy. And when the video comes out, you'll have to check it out. You'll see that I'm just walking. I'm not even having to like readjust my arms or make big balancing moves. I'm just walking and 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 walking. And at some point in the late evening, the wind just dies. I get about a third or, you know, almost halfway across this thing and the wind dies and this the dragon wakes up and the oscillations start bouncing back to my feet. And then it becomes very tiring and I'm having to fight to keep my balance and I'm having to slow down to, to keep my balance and keep the line calm. And 
at some point I just get tired from all the battling and I, I take a fall. But realistically, it was the longest slackline walk I've ever done. I think I did almost 250 meters of the line in one go. Um, so damn near a thousand feet or, you know, 750 feet, 800 feet, something like that. Um, and it was really easy and it felt so good and it was so beautiful and I had a blast and I didn't kick myself at all because the conditions just weren't right. And in the end, almost a dozen people walked the slack line, sent it com- completely successfully with wind. Only one person did it without wind and that was Julian. Um, so I wasn't that upset that I didn't walk it because I just didn't have the conditions. And in hindsight, I think that if I would have, you know, maybe some good wind, I'd, I'd have a real shot at walking right across that thing. Do I think I could do it on my first try? I don't know. It's pretty damn easy to walk on and it felt really good. So I wouldn't put that past myself, but, um, yeah, it was fun either way. So I didn't kick myself too much after falling. I had a blast. What an honor it is just to even walk something like that. It's really rare that you get a chance to uh, to do that. Even even the piece of webbing itself, let's say that piece of webbing is a dollar a foot. So that's, you know, $2,500 worth of just webbing. And uh, it's rare that you get to even see a line like that, let alone get to walk it. So... I was just stoked that I had been flown to China, paid to slackline. What a joy and an honor and a privilege. So I was just, when I fell, I clapped for myself and I screamed and I yelled and I loved every second of it. I didn't kick myself for a moment about that. Um, and then after that, okay, so during this whole slackline thing, we we're in Wanfo Lake. We were staying at this hotel that is right on the lake and we eat breakfast and dinner every day in the cafeteria there. And the food, let's talk about the food at Wanfo Lake. So the food at Wanfo Lake, every meal is family style. You sit at round tables with giant lazy Susans and you, uh, my dog's barking. You sit at you sit at big round tables and you sit at big round tables and there's this big lazy Susan in the middle and they bring out ten dishes, twelve dishes at a time, and you get this big rotating plethora of food. A lot of it is greasy vegetables, and not greasy but oily. They use a lot of oil in Chinese cooking. Uh, oil is a staple of their diet literally sesame oil vegetable oil corn oil and they cook with a lot of it so some of these dishes are uh all different kinds of mushrooms they eat so many different mushrooms in china one kind one of my favorite kinds is called the jew's ear and they're these really thin like mushroom caps Uh, and they're super tasty and everything's with rice. Obviously, we all eat with chopsticks all the time, which I love chopsticks. I've been eating with chopsticks since I've been back here in Oregon. It's very entertaining. It's very interactive. And that's another element of Chinese cuisine that I really liked was the interaction, the family style. Uh, and we'll get to hot pot later. Um, 
Hmm. What else? They they serve a lot of fish there, but in kind of bland ways that I didn't really l- enjoy. And something about the Chinese fish, they must add bones to it because it's the boniest fish I've ever eaten in my life. It, I just stopped eating it because it takes so much time. Every bite of fish, you have to pull five, ten bones out of and it just gets annoying. Um, for breakfast, the Chinese don't really have breakfast food. Not what I would consider breakfast food. They tend to eat uh, stir-fried noodles, which are oily in the morning. They eat steamed buns, which I don't really like the steamed buns. Um, There's not a lot of sauce. Not a lot of sauce for those steamed buns. I need like some... I needed something for it. I needed some maple syrup or something. I didn't have it. Well, what I ended up eating a lot of was the vegetables, and I would eat, uh, you know, some some fried rice and hard-boiled eggs. That kind of became my staple in the mornings. And I would always take three hard-boiled eggs and put them in my pocket for lunch. They also eat soup at every meal. And their food has a lot of water in it since they eat so many vegetables. And so you don't get that, like, you really are... The the food is very hydrating. The soup and the, the watery vegetables... Um, but it became kind of redundant because we were at the same place and we were eating from the same kitchen. But there was this one night, there was this one night where they brought out this food that it looked like fajitas. It was, it was bell peppers and it was onions and it had some kind of red sauce on it. And it was so good. And I just started screaming fajitas and we just started plowing this dish. It was so good. Oh man, we prayed for fajitas every night but it never came again and um yeah so we had a great time we're staying in this hotel together my roommate was alexander schultz who is a multiple time world record holder and really inspiring slackliner who turned out to be just one of the most humble kind people that i've met and what a joy that is to meet someone who's so talented and inspiring and notorious in their sport and they're so kind, and they're so humble. And shout out to Alexander Schultz. Wow, what a person you are. Such a pleasure to get to know you. Um, At some point, Chris Hoyt showed up, and we started shooting photos and shooting videos and flying the drone, the Mavic Pro that he has, which is so much fun. I'm addicted to the drone again. Uh, I walked a lot on this 280-meter line that was rigged in front of the dam. Had a bunch of fun on that thing. And, uh, yeah, we went out on the yacht one day, and we did a lot of relaxing. And then finally the trip came to an end, and the the slackliners all loaded up onto a bus, and they got shuttled back to Shanghai. But for Chris and I, the trip was just beginning. We got into a, into a uh, shuttle, and we went to Hefei, the capital city of Anhui, and we met up with Thomas, who was the commentator for the TV broadcast of the Slackline competition. And I had hired Thomas as our fixer, as our guide, translator, fixer. And we met him in Hefei. And we went to lunch at this Korean place in the mall, which was really, really good. Or no, it wasn't Korean. It was Taiwanese. It was Taiwanese. 
and we had this really, really good pork sandwich, which I was just so ready for a sandwich because I hadn't had bread in like 10 days. And we had this really good bowl of uh, these egg noodles with beef broth. And we also had these shrimp dumplings that were so good. And the dumplings in China, they're delicious, and they're served with this, it's like think of somewhere between vinegar and soy sauce. Yeah, delicious. Really good. So uh had some beer and had some lunch in Hefei and that that got me stoked for the next round of Chinese cuisine. We had breaking broken free from the Wanfo Lake cafeteria and we were off into the country. So we got onto a bullet train that evening at 7:30, which we barely made. And we have this huge, we just have huge luggage because we have paragliders and camera gear and all this shit. So we're lugging this stuff around. We stick out like sore thumbs. Luckily, we had Thomas to be our guide and our translator and help us understand the system. And And the thing that I learned about bullet trains is those things are on a schedule. And they will not wait for you, not for a second. The door's close and they'll chop your leg off if you don't get your leg in and you're leaving your leg there on the platform they run on a very tight schedule and they go so fast Uh, we did 308 kilometers an hour but it doesn't feel like the thing's even moving even around turns the things are perfectly banked to be able to go you know the the track is banked perfectly so the train can just fly through it at 300 mi- 300 kilometers an hour you don't even notice you know it's 180 miles an hour things just zoom by at an unbelievable rate and when you are doing 180 miles an hour and a train is going the opposite way at 180 miles an hour and you pass each other it is a m- huge noise the train shifts to one side because of the air and it's just a blur of a white bullet going by. That's why they call it a bullet train. It's a really cool experience. The level of engineering is really, really high. There is no clickety-clack down Larea Road track. It is smooth sailing in those things. And the fare was pretty reasonable. So we went from Hefei to this place called Zhenzhou. Zhenzhou is a city in China on the Yellow River. It's one of the biggest rivers in China. And in the 60s, the Chinese government decided that the railway, as they developed the railway, they were going to have to have a central hub that connected the north-south to the east-west railway systems. And this was the decided location, Zhenzhou. And so in the 60s, the government subsidized the development of this city. So the... Urban planning is really good because it didn't just grow organically. It was actually like kind of decided that it was going to be this this extra infrastructure was going to help the city grow in major ways. So they built the urban planning out to begin with. And since the Yellow River is there, they built a bunch of canals and they planted thousands and thousands of trees. So they kind of call it China City of Trees and... um. And we got there really late. We got there at like midnight, and we were, I was so damn tired of traveling at that point. And we had our big bags, and and we didn't know where we were going to stay. And so I got like a moment of homesickness. And then Thomas, we started looking, and 
he found us this place, this hostel that was really close. And it was a, they call it a pod hostel. So there's these little tiny, these little tiny pods that we sleep in. It's like essentially like a bunk bed, but the bunk bed has like USB chargers and its own lights and a fan. And (laughs) it's really funny, but it was super cheap and it did the job. And we, uh, it was super close to the train station, so the next morning we just walked back to the train station, started standing in line, getting the train tickets, and then we go through the security, which is just like airport security. They x-ray your bags and stuff. And Chris Hoyt had a pocket knife, and they took his pocket knife, which was sad. We love knives in America. And then get on the bullet train, and we go just one hour north to a another city called Anyang. Anyang is a tiny, tiny, tiny city, only half a million people, which Jinzhou that we came from was almost 10 million. And from there, we get a taxi to the place where we're going to go paraglide. It's a place called Linzhou. The J's that I'm saying... Joe, Jinjo and Linjo, these are ZHs. So Linjo is L I N Z H O U, pronounced Linjo. I had been calling it Linzu until I got to China and realized that I was an idiot or phonic. I don't know what it is. Anywho, we arrive at Linjo and we go to this hotel, which was the nicest in the area. And I was just so tired of traveling that it was a hundred bucks for us to get a room for the three of us. And I said, okay, no problem. Let's do that. And it was a really nice room, really nice hotel. And we were glad to be in the lap of luxury, at least for one night. And we went down to the paragliding club and we talked to the paragliding club and we gave him our paperwork and we showed him our insurance and yada, yada, yada. And we said, okay, tomorrow we'll, we'll come and we'll get a, uh, you know, you know, we'll get a ride up and they gave us the price, but it was going to be really expensive. It was going to be 300 yuan, about 50 bucks to take all three of us to the, to the launch, which they said was 50 minutes away. And so we hired this taxi cab driver and he drove us up there the next day. The road to launch is insane and winding and steep and through tunnels and switchback after switchback after switchback and one lane. And so you have to honk around every blind corner and it's pretty, uh, it's pretty hairy. It's pretty hairy, but we arrive on launch and it's just a massive launch. It accommodates 150 pilots at a time. It's huge and it's on top of a mountain. It's uh, almost 3000 feet above the landing and it's really, really cool. So we're instantly stoked. At about 10.45, this Russian guy launches his glider and within two minutes gets a 1,000 feet over launch. The conditions are just ripping. And so, of course, we get really stoked. We lay out our gliders and we launch and we instantly go skyward. We get so high off the ground. We have what turned out to be the best flight of my whole life. The terrain, the mountains, the gorges that we're flying over are just unimaginably huge. So beautiful and green and covered in jungle. And 
I fly further than I've ever flown in my life. I flew a 40K triangle, which in the scheme of cross-country flying is really not that big, but a total of 90 kilometers, and I got 8,000 feet off the ground, higher than I had ever been. We got some amazing photos, and it just all together blew our minds. So I landed at the landing zone, screaming and yelling, having such a good time. And we met that day, I met this guy, Shupeng Jang, who is one of China's best wingsuit base jumpers. He's sponsored by Red Bull. And thanks to Sean Chuma, a base jumper that I know here in the United States, he had connected us. And I just kind of recognized him and introduced myself and he told us that we could stay at this hostel and that there was a free barbecue tonight. And so we went to the hostel and it was so nice. And we decided this is where we're staying for the rest of the time. We had a free barbecue that night with all the paragliding pilots, which was amazing to get to be a part of the community. Uh, there was so many pilots there because two days after we arrived, there was a uh, international cat to cross-country competition happening. And so all these pilots were in town for the competition. The site itself was going to close down and we weren't going to be allowed to fly unless we were in the competition. So, of course, we said, all right, let's sign up for the competition. It was a great deal. It gave us rides to launch every day. It gave us lunch. It gave us retrieve. So if we landed way out, they'd come get us. Um, and it was just... It was a good opportunity, so we signed up. So after two days of flying, Thomas, our fixer, decided that was enough, and he left. I gave him a $40 tip. He loved it. We had a great time with Thomas. Shout out to Thomas. And we uh, started flying in this contest. Flying in a contest in China. Let's talk about that. Well, there was 90 pilots representing 17 different countries, uh, Nepal, Serbia, Russia, um, France, China, Taiwan, Korea, um, just to name a few. The opening ceremony was really cool. They had probably 15 or 20 paramotors all flying different flags and doing a paramotor demonstration. And it was so cool. And then our first day of the competition, the conditions just weren't the same as the first two days that we flew there. They just were lighter. The lift wasn't going as high. And which that's kind of how it goes, right? You you call a competition and the conditions just go to shit. Well, what I noticed about these Asian paraglide pilots was, for one, there's so many women. It's so cool. Of 90 pilots, we had 16 women competing, which... As far as I know, that's that's a pretty good number. That's a pretty strong women turnout. For every 90 paraglide pilots I know in America, there's definitely not 16 girls in there. Um, it's probably more like 6 out of 90. Um, and so they all fly high aspect ratio, really advanced paragliders, but they don't really kite them that well. Kiting is the handling you do of the glider while your feet are still on the ground. And these people really struggle getting off the ground. Of course, there's a couple really good paraglide pilots there from Asia. Even a few professionals, a few people who are 
factory pilots for the Jin company. Jin is one of the bigger um, paraglide manufacturers. They're out of Korea. And yeah, so we saw a lot of failed launches, a lot of bad kiting. Um, but in general, we had a blast. I was flying my new Keen glider, thanks to Keen for sending us and for sending that glider. It's a Delta II from Ozone. It's really cool. It used to be Nick Grease's. So it's got some really good juju on it. Um, yeah, and it's a great glider. And I had, man, just two of the best flights of my whole life, Thermaline in China. So now we're in Linzhou. We're out in the countryside. The city of Linzhou itself is a million people. But we're kind of up towards the mountains outside of the city. We're staying in the, this hostel. And we meet this guy who's a paraglide pilot from Beijing. He's 58. And his name is Ma Xiang. Ma Xiang. And Ma Xiang is a hotel owner from Beijing. He drives a really nice new Mercedes Benz that he drives us to launch in it. Or he drives us to the club in every day. And he's just so nice to us. He learned English 30 years ago and doesn't use it much, so it's very broken. But he has the desire to communicate in English, and we fill in the gaps with Google Translate, which is a just absolutely necessary tool if you're traveling in a country that you don't speak the language of. And he takes us to this place for dinner one night. It's up in the countryside. And he orders this chicken soup. A chicken soup that will soon change my life. <laughs> it was the best damn chicken soup I've ever had. Maybe the best soup I've ever had. So it's an entire chicken, the head, the feet, all. It was a rooster, so even the head had that like big floppy fucking rooster thing on top of his head, which tasted so good, surprisingly. The feet, chicken feet are a pretty common item in China, and this soup is so simple. It is just leeks, green onion, cilantro, ginger, salt, and chicken. And they let it boil for at least one hour, and then they serve it in this huge clay pot. And the chicken is still whole in there, but it's so tender from boiling that you just, like, you use the big ladle, and you just chop the chicken apart with the ladle. That's how tender it was. And it was so freaking good. Um... Moss Young, when we ride around in that car every day and he slams on the brakes, we hear something rolling around in the trunk and we don't ask what it is. But that night at dinner, we found out what it is because he had bought a case of some of the finest Chinese rice whiskey that you can buy. It's about 70 bucks a bottle and the bottle is maybe half a fifth or even less. So every night at dinner, we drink an entire bottle of this rice whiskey and a bottle of French wine that he has also rolling around in the trunk of the car. And, uh, wow, what a joy to be in the lap of luxury once again here in China. Meet the right people. He loves his meals and his food and his alcohol, and we met the right guy. So thank you so much to Moss Young for, for treating us the way that he did. Um, also that night at dinner, we had... These noodles, which are kind of a tradition there in Linzhou, which are made from a, just a real mix of their starches and grains. It's rice, sweet potato, potato, corn, all mixed, and they make a noodle out of it 
that is super, super slimy. And in the beginning, I thought it was gross, but then I started eating it. It tastes so good. Um, it's really, really hard to pick up with chopsticks. So the Chinese use a spoon for that dish. Um, and we also had, as an appetizer, we had kua sheng, which are peanuts. And they were boiled peanuts. They boil them in really, really salty water. So they're nice and salty, soft peanuts to go with our rice whiskey. And uh, we had we had that. We had the wasabi-style sweet potato noodles. We had the chicken soup. Uh, one of the – two of the most popular dishes in China are – eggs, scrambled eggs, and you eat it for dinner, lunch and dinner. And the two things they scramble the eggs with are one, leeks and green onions, and two, tomatoes. And you know how if you scramble eggs and you cook them with tomatoes, the juice from the tomato kind of makes the the eggs kind of weird? And in America, we don't really like that. Well, in China, they totally embrace that, and it kind of becomes this like almost like half soupy scrambled egg tomato dish. Uh, it's really good. turns out to be really good. They put enough salt in it. It's pretty, pretty nice. But I like the leeks and the green onions in the scrambled eggs much better. And so that was the second dish. The peanuts came out and then the eggs came out and it must be a dozen eggs on scrambled on this plate. And we just, the three of us just inhale the dozen eggs. Um, it's so good. Love that. And what else did we eat? Oh, we also had these little tiny fish. So there's these little fish. They're not, they're probably like, let's call them like four inches or five inches. And they're gutted, but their head is there and their tail's there. And you eat just the whole thing. And they're deep fried. And it makes the fish really, really crunchy. And like even the spine, just like you just crunch it up in your mouth and swallow it. It's really good. Uh, it was kind of a new experience for me. Um, but yeah, and then we, we headed back to the hostel and we played ping pong. And I played ping pong against this Chinese guy, Moss Young, and realized that, wow, ping pong is a thing because he is so good at ping pong. Um, and he smoked me two games to nothing that night. The next day I got some redemption on the ping pong table, but the Chinese play ping pong uh, pretty seriously. They're pretty damn good at it. And ping pong is like a sport. It's on TV all the time. We travel through China. We see ping pong on TV. Even like we saw this like behind the scenes thing on like their training regimen. And people are like working out like you'd see football players or basketball players like working out, doing these really strenuous training regimens for ping pong. Seeing their coaches talking about the players really seemed funny to me, but it's a real thing over there. Um so yeah, we kept flying and then everyone left after the competition and we flew for one more day. Um, but there was one day that we took off of the competition because we had been flying five days in a row and it was just time. And one day we woke up and there was just haze. There's a lot of smog in China, a lot of smog in China. And one day it was just particularly smoggy. And so we took the day off from flying and Moss Young agreed and he took the day off from flying. And so we loaded up into the Mercedes and we headed into the valley and, we went into the valley and we started driving up the mountain and we stopped where this family had kind of pulled off the road. And when I say pulled off the road, man, in China, pulling off the road and being considerate of other people passing you is like not even a thing. Um, you just pretty much stop in the middle of the road and people sit there and honk and you don't give a shit and just sit there and you eat your watermelon with your family anyways. And when you leave, they 
the people can finally go. So, um, so we drive through the valley and we end up driving way, 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 way up into the mountains, into this mountain town that's like on top of this mountain. And, uh, especially as white guys, we, we, uh, we stick out like sore thumbs and this Chinese guy starts talking to us in Chinese, which we don't understand at all. So Moss Young takes over the conversation and Moss Young says, oh, this guy's trying to invite you to his restaurant for lunch. And so we say, yeah, we need lunch. I'm hungry. Let's go. So we load up into the Mercedes again and we take the guy with us and we drive up to this restaurant and we sit down and restaurants in China are very like, it's like a compound. The family that runs it lives there. It's also kind of like an element of a hotel. So you can like rent a room for the night. Um, there's like, it's not like the seating is not all in one area. There's all kinds of different seating. You can sit inside, you can sit outside, you can sit on the patio, you can sit on the second floor. Um, and so we're sitting there and this Chinese guy, he, you know, I kind of greet them and he offers me a shot of some clear liquor that he's pouring out of a water bottle. Turned out to be rice whiskey, and he insisted that I have a shot of it with him. And when I say he insisted, I mean he insisted so hard. I didn't want it. It was like 11 a.m. I didn't want a shot of whiskey. But I took it so I wouldn't be rude. I cheersed him, and I knocked back the shot. And then he poured another one, and I said, no, no, no. Like, I did the one thing just to be polite. And then he really started insisting. He grabbed a hold of my wrist and he wouldn't let me step away from him. He was talking very, very loud at me. He was not smiling. The hair on the back of my neck rose up. My hackles went up. I was like, am I going to have to throw this guy over the railing or what? But I took a breath and so I just took another shot, right? And then he poured another shot. And so... Every time he just insists, 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 insists. Like, even in a physical way, like by squeezing my wrist so hard and like yelling at me. The whole time, Moss Young is laughing because <laughs> he's laughing at me. Fucker. Um, <laughs> and so I end up doing three shots of rice whiskey at about 11 a.m. And I take a beer from the guy because if he's going to make me drink three shots of rice whiskey, I'm obviously going to be drunk and I'm going to wash it down with a beer. So I do that. And Thomas tells me how polite the guy was when I talked to Thomas later that night on the phone. He says, oh, that guy was being very nice to you that he insisted that you drink with him. I was like, <laughs> it didn't seem very nice to me. But that was kind of the only, that was one of the weird interactions I had with a Chinese person. The only other really weird interaction we had was in China and in Wanfo Lake and in Linzhou, these places are, the diversity is just completely and totally non-existent. Um, like, it's just Chinese people on Chinese people on Chinese people on Chinese people on Chinese people, on Chinese people. And they've never really seen a white person. And so when they see you, they want to take pictures with you. And some people are really polite. And they, they ask, even in Chinese, 
they ask if they can take a picture with you. And of course I oblige. Yes, I would love that. And I, I give them hugs and I throw the peace sign and, um, and it even gets even weirder to the point that I like, I held babies for photos. I held babies for photos because they want me to hold their babies for the photo. Um, the babies cry and they hate the white guys, <laughs> but the parents insist that I hold the babies and I don't care about a crying baby. So I should have signed the baby with a Sharpie on its forehead, but they were not asking for a signature. But anyways, there was this one day where we had this guy who kind of like laughed at us that we were the white guys. And then he came up behind us. Chris Hoyt and I were standing there and he came up behind us and he threw his arms around our necks and he kind of like squeezed on us in a, just a, just completely and totally crossing the line. And so I had to physically grab his arm and twist his arm around and get him off of my neck. He was like, he was like the day drinking dad or something that was like, Oh, he was so rude. And anyways, I posted on Facebook about that and people didn't really like that. They thought that I was being racist and rude, which of course Americans are hypersensitive to anything regarding race. But if a Chinaman were in America and didn't speak any English and I thought that was funny and I threw my arms around him or if I forced him to take a picture of me or forced him to have alcohol, well, people would obviously think I was a complete and total dickhead. But since I didn't really like those elements of the Chinese culture, I was insensitive. Anywho, um, we spent two more days flying there in Linzhou. Amazing scenery, incredible food, more chicken soup. We had this one experience where we rode bikes through this little tiny village and these kids came out and greeted us. There was 10 girls, 10 boys. They had just gotten out of school. And they were making jokes and yelling and laughing. And then when I tried to shake their hands, they became actually very scared of me. And it took five to ten minutes for them to be comfortable even shaking my hand and being close to me or giving me a hug, you know, that kind of thing. And then the girls, they said, I can dance. Can I do a dance for you? And this little girl did a little dance. And then the other girls were like, we can do a dance. Can we do a dance for you? And then six of them did this like choreographed dance. It was all so amazing. We have great footage of it. And then we decided to fly the drone for them, right? We pulled out the Mavic and we flew the drone for them, which just totally blew their minds. And I showed them through the camera what their village looks like from above. Um, and then they chased us up the hill and took us to this restaurant. And when we got to the restaurant, they basically started screaming at the owners of the restaurant. Like, this is my interpretation of what they were yelling. They were like, Hey, everybody, get out here. Get the fucking food ready. The white guys are eating dinner here. Get them a table. Get stoked. They're here. They're fucking eating dinner here. Can you believe it? Oh, my God. So great. So amazing. And Of course, the little kids are the only ones that speak any English in these villages. So they take our menu. They take our order and they write it down. And uh, the little kids were the, the kids are always the highlight of any trip. Kids are the the best you you don't need language so much with children high fives and physical jokes and little games that's all you need so uh the next day we flew and i ended up landing out in this village a different village i landed like next to a cornfield and managed to kite my glider onto a road and 
as soon as I landed, three villagers walked up on me, probably 70 years old each, and they all had hoes and shovels. And they just instantly were so curious, and they weren't shy. They just right away started touching my glider. Right away started touching the fabric, seeing what it's made out of, pulling on the string, seeing what they're made out of. Uh, the old, the little old lady tried to pick up my harness and she said, Oh, it's so heavy. So heavy. And I said, yeah, I'm strong. And I flexed my bicep. I'm strong. And so then I helped her put the harness on her back and she said, Oh, it's like a seat. You know, like obviously she speaks no English and I speak no Chinese, but context is pretty easy to understand her amazement. Well, I start folding up my glider instantly. The villagers start observing what I'm doing. And as soon as they can realize what I'm doing, they start helping me. They start folding my glider with me. They start helping pressing the air out of it. And then I get it packed up and I start putting it in the backpack. They start, I'm trying to zip this big giant backpack up and they're pulling the zippers together and I'm zipping it up. Then I'm pulling the zipper together and they're zipping it up. And and then I get everything packed up and I put the thing on my back and they start pointing. They say, look, look, you got to go this way. And then they, they're making hand signals. You turn this way and you turn this way. That's how you get out of the village. Wow. Just moments before I landed out of the village, I was kicking myself. I was saying, fuck, I landed out. Why did you land out? You could have, you could have stayed up in the air. You could have gone farther. You could have had a better flight. You, you, you're landing out. What an idiot. And then I landed and I realized that that's exactly where I should have been. And that's where I needed to be, and that's where I wanted to be. Um, and that was a good lesson in my life of not being able to foresee the lessons and the best, some of the best things you can't foresee. We try so hard to plan out these awesome things. We try so hard to plan out the awesome things. But the, the best things come unexpectedly, and they come sometimes when you think you're about to get a bad thing. Um, and so... Let's let's uh let's leave Lin Zhou there. After that we went to Shanghai. We rode the bullet train back to Shanghai and we ended up getting a hostel and the next day we explored the city and stayed out till sunrise and we went up into the second tallest building in the world and we did the city thing and we ate good food and we ate squid off of this off of the street vendors and we loved it we loved it uh china is a place that you should go there's a lot of smog but whose smog is it right i think part of that smog is our smog we sending our manufacturing over there we send our smog over there so i think it's important that you go breathe some of your own smog go smell some of your own shit kind of a wake up as to how we do things, and especially in the wake of this big Paris Accord, Trump pulling out of the Paris Accord, people think it helps the environment, but reality is that putting regulations on American manufacturing just exports our smog to somewhere else. doesn't really have a net difference and might even have a net negative impact since we export it to countries who don't have any regulation and they really don't have a clear and unified understanding and education about groundwater and air quality and all that stuff. So something to think about. And that's the only political rant that I'll have in this podcast, but 
Uh, you should go to China. It's great there. The people are great. The beer is low alcohol, but it's cold and abundant and cheap. And China in general is cheap. The city's kind of expensive, but in general, China's pretty cheap. And it was a great trip. I loved it. Shout-outs to Keen for making that dream happen for me and to Slackline China for involving me in their contest. Hoping to go back in July for a different one. Uh, and thank you for listening. If you've made it all the way here, an hour and seven and a half minutes into this podcast, why don't you shoot me an email, airyintheair at gmail.com, leave a review, share this podcast. I'm doing it for free right now, folks. I'm doing it for free. I'm doing it for you, and I'm kind of doing it for me. So thanks to Keen for sponsoring me. They made this one possible. Uh, Look forward to the next podcast. Love you. Take care.